Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to have this as a guest today, Dr. Kim Jones. Uh, Dr. Jones is an assistant professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering at McMaster University, and her general area of interest in research uh, relates to tissue engineering. Uh, Dr. Jones, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Thank you very much. Uh, perhaps you can uh, begin our discussions by giving us a bit of an introduction and an overview to uh, your research interest and uh, the directions that you're headed. My primary research interests actually have to do with host response to biomaterials. Biomaterials have many different applications. Tissue engineering and regenerative medicine is a big one, but there are other ones that I'll talk about later. The reason that we care about host response to biomaterials is that how the body responds to things that are implanted in it will directly affect the functional outcome of whatever is in there. So the biomaterial itself, uh, we know, has many inflammatory effects. doesn't matter what the material is made of. And those inflammatory effects will affect uh, immune responses. So if you have a tissue-engineered construct that has foreign cell components, the biomaterial will change that. Uh, and potentially, the inflammatory response will affect uh, eventual regenerative outcomes. So well, whether it turns to a scarring type response or a regenerative type response. Reason that we care about the host response to biomaterials is that uh, it has the potential to affect immune responses. And in immune responses, uh, we care about that in tissue engineering because you may have a foreign cell component, uh, which would lead to a rejection response. Uh, it also has the potential to change eventual regenerative responses. So uh, fibrosis versus regeneration, or in other words, scarring versus healing. Are, the, are you developing biomaterials and assessing their uh, response, or are you assessing the response of other bi biomaterials that have been provided by others? primarily assessing the response of biomaterials that have been provided by others. There are a huge number of wonderful biomaterials and wonderful biomaterial scientists out there. And uh, unfortunately, much of the work to date has been focused on um, much more basic questions. Is this appropriate mechanically? Um, does it kill cells? So my purpose is to help the biomaterials chemists have a more biological feedback to their design. Um, so I measure biological responses to the materials with the eventual goal that in collaboration with chemists, we can ultimately design a material based on biological principles. As our listeners know from some of the prior podcasts, uh, there are scientists that are developing and applying or adapting uh, naturally derived scaffold materials as well as uh, uh, chemically engineered scaffold materials. Uh, are your interests in both of these or in just one? Absolutely. My interests are in both naturally derived and synthetically derived biomaterials. I think both have promise. Uh, there are some risks with some of the naturally derived biomaterials depending on where they're from um, because our own bodies have adapted innate immune responses to biomaterials. Well, I shouldn't say to biomaterials. Have it developed innate immune responses 
to pathogen-associated molecular patterns. And some of the naturally derived biomaterials run the risk of simulating pathogen-associated molecular patterns because of their, uh, the source of their derivation. Um, one example, I won't say it's a terrible material by any means, but one example is alginate, which normally comes from uh, seaweed. However, you also see alginate in bacterial biofilms, so it wouldn't be surprising if our own bodies have adapted responses to materials like alginate. And in fact, some of the work in my lab has shown that indeed there are what's called innate immune responses to alginate. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It may in fact be a helpful thing depending on your application. Um, but the, the immune system has two arms, the one we're normally used to, which is the adaptive immune response, and then a much more primitive arm, which is called the innate immune response. And that's our first uh, response to anything that goes into the body. And I think, it's, uh, I think as this work evolves, we'll see that many, many biomaterials, to some extent, activate this innate immune response. You had mentioned earlier that the this issues that you're addressing is a lot broader than regenerative medicine. Uh, I can think of a few, but perhaps for our listeners, you just name uh, the principal other applications of biomaterials that are used or proposed to be used in the human body that uh, uh, might be uh, subject to these issues. So I'm interested in two aspects of host response. One is the inflammatory leading to immune responses, and the other is the inflammatory leading to fibrotic responses. And in those two cases, the applications are somewhat different. So, of course, with fibrotic responses, any implanted biomaterial is vulnerable to those responses, and if we can change those responses, that would probably be a good thing. So we can imagine things like even catheters, uh, uh, sutures and wound healing applications, any implanted devices, including um, heart valves, uh, breast implants, whatever, all of these things are vulnerable to fibrotic responses. So in that case, that's um, certainly of interest in a broad range of areas, even in biological probes. In uh, the effect of biomaterials-based inflammation on immunity, certainly that's important in tissue engineering. It could be important in some drug delivery applications where the drug itself may be antigenic. Um, for example, uh, some hemophilia patients develop antibodies to their, the drugs that help them, and biomaterials could make it worse or potentially better. Um, but one application that I'm very interested in uh, developing further is actually using biomaterials to deliver vaccines. Because if perhaps there, it may be that we can't uh, get rid of the biomaterial adjuvant effect on immune responses, so instead perhaps we can use it to our advantage and engineer better biomaterials that can cause more immune response. And in fact, uh, change the immune response to a particular type of response that we want. So right now in the lab I'm working on um, using new biomaterials for cancer vaccines. Does this biomaterial strategy also give you the, the possible opportunity of targeted drug delivery? Absolutely. Um, with the 
there, there are two sides to this. With the cancer vaccine work that I'm doing, actually in collaboration with Dr. Bob Pelton, uh, he's developed a very nice nanogel system, and we're using that to target dendritic cells or antigen-presenting cells, and uh, in fact, not just target, but activate those cells. Um, so as well as delivering a drug payload, uh, which in, in this case is the antigen, uh, we're also having directing the, the biomaterials and trying to have a specific effect on the cells. I'm sure that all our listeners understand the, uh, the complications or the issues related to immune response, but uh, just to make sure everybody's on the same page, can you briefly speak about the issues of fibrotic response? In fact, it's a very difficult question. Uh, almost always, you know, if you get a sliver in your finger, and even if it's not infected, ultimately your body will try to wall it off. And that's the case with just about every biomaterial that you put in the body. Your body perceives it as a foreign object and tries to protect itself by forming some scar tissue. And that ultimately will have a number of deleterious effects on the function of whatever you're putting in. Um, there has certainly been a hypothesis for many years that the inflammatory response leads directly to the fibrotic response. We're starting to show that that may in fact not be the case, but different molecules and different reactions may lead into the scar tissue. Um, so in almost all cases, we want to try and avoid the scarring response to biomaterials, whether it's in for drug devices, for tissue engineering and regenerative medicine, for probes, for drug delivery, for wound healing. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from the wound healing literature um, to help us uh, move toward uh, non-scarring biomaterials. So this is, this is exciting and certainly shows a lot of promise in various applications. Uh, one observation that a lot of our listeners have uh, heard in previous podcasts is the sort of the team-based approach to uh, developing the solutions to these issues and the fact that most of these are also multidisciplinary studies. And it seems clear that in your case and the collaborators that you've made uh, reference to that you're following that path as well. Absolutely. This work is not possible without collaboration. Um, so I'm not a materials chemist, uh, so I collaborate with materials chemists. Uh, I know a lot about immunology and do a lot of immunology, but it's also critical that I collaborate with people who are trained as immunologists. So, uh, for example, with the cancer vaccine work, I'm collaborating with uh, Jonathan Brampson. Uh, and, in fact, I collaborate with a virologist because she has some interesting insights into how uh, cells interact and how to affect those interactions with the immune system. So it's critical in making progress in this type of work that you interact um, from in the whole range from chemistry to intense uh, molecular and cellular biology. Um, I, I see my role almost as um, bridging that gap. Yeah, working between the disciplines is uh, something that I've often heard other scientists speak about as well. I know this is basic science, and the, but you also shared general terms, your, your vision and your mission. Uh, do you have any rough estimates as to when some of these technologies might mature to the point that they might be available? Is this a five-year, a 10-year, a 15-year effort? Uh, or 
is it too, too soon to say? I really think that um, the way we're approach it, approaching it, there are incremental benefits all the way along the route. Uh, so at this point, we're really learning about how to measure the responses best to biomaterials. So we're learning some simple things about which materials have good effects in some applications and bad effects in other applications. But we're also learning about how, in fact, it's best to measure those responses. And those measurement techniques will be applicable immediately um, and useful immediately. And so you can use those techniques to decide whether this is an appropriate material for an application. Understanding some of the more basic biology and translating that into better materials uh, again, it depends on the application. I think we're there for some applications. For example, when we want to activate the immune system, we have some pretty good ideas about how to do that. When we want to down-regulate the immune system, that's a longer-term prospect because it's very complex and has many different ways of becoming activated. Uh, similarly with fibrosis, I think it's at least 10 years off to actually achieve a material that down-regulates scar tissue effectively, repeatably, and for many different applications. Um, because we have so much to learn about how scar tissue forms around biomaterials. Yeah, this isn't inconsistent with uh, other scientists we've talked to in some related areas. And uh, I just think it's important for our listeners to appreciate the that while this basic science is the place to start, there is unfortunately a long path to the point where it can be uh, done, applied uh, clinically. This is very interesting. Are there any results that uh, you can uh, share with us from a preliminary perspective? Absolutely. Uh, one of the first steps that we've taken was trying to understand uh, what happens what the first step is, in fact, how the cells sense the biomaterials in the first place uh, on a molecular level. So when the cells actually come in contact with the biomaterial, what is it about the biomaterial that causes the cells to become activated? And uh, many people think it's just the proteins that are adhered to the biomaterial. That's certainly a contributing factor. Uh, but we've shown, in fact, that it can be the chemistry of the biomaterial that interacts directly with the cells, probably with the innate immune system, with receptors called the toll-like receptors. And uh, that is one way that the cells are being activated by the biomaterials. So understanding how the cells even sense that the materials are there is a critical step because if you don't understand that step you can't have a hope of influencing the subsequent steps. I'm curious when you talk about biomaterials and you've shared a, a wide range of examples uh, there's some biomaterials that I know are used in scaffolds that are designed to deteriorate and of course there's other biomaterials that are designed to perform their function, hopefully, for the life of the patient. Uh, so uh, clearly all these issues that you've, uh, you've shared with us uh, relate to the non-degradable biomaterials, but uh, are they equally applicable to the, uh, to the degradable biomaterials, i.e. tissue-engineered scaffolds? Uh, in some cases, I think it might be more applicable. For example, uh, we've recently shown that uh, with alginate, which is a common 
non-synthetic, natural biomaterial. Uh, in fact, soluble forms of alginate have a far more activating effect than cross-linked solid forms. So that suggests that while it's in its solid form, it may in fact be relatively, I hate to use the word inert, but calm in the immune system. But when it starts to degrade, that may be when we start to see immune cells responding to the material. So we have to be very careful to understand not just the effect of the solid, but the chemical effect of the degradation products. And I'm not sure that that's something that's been fully investigated yet. I know that uh, you also, in addition to your research, have some academic responsibilities. Uh, can you uh, share with us a little bit about the, uh, the program at McMaster? Actually, McMaster has uh, a couple of very uh, exciting academic programs, both at the undergraduate and the graduate level, and I participate in teaching for both of them. Of course, we have traditional chemical engineering, which I participate in teaching, um, but we also have a bioengineering program which is, uh, to my knowledge, unique in North America. It's a five-year program that incorporates a full chemical engineering program uh, spread out and interspersed every term the students get to take biology courses, um, getting more and more targeted into bioengineering courses uh, in the upper years. So they take anatomy and physiology courses where they get to do hands-on work with human cadavers. Uh, they take microbiology courses where they learn about how to produce proteins and fermenters. Uh, and then they take uh, a bioengineering laboratory course, which is one that I teach, where they get to tissue engineer a crude blood vessel. They get to differentiate stem cells. Uh, they get to grow up proteins in fermenters, purify them, analyze them. Uh, they get to understand protein adhesion to biomaterials, drug delivery, and so on. So it's a very exciting program. I think it really integrates the chemical engineering approach with fundamental understandings of biology and their applications. So on, as an undergrad program, I think it's a fantastic, I wish it's an, a, a program I could have taken when I was going through. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for the students. And then we also have a graduate program now, which is the School of Biomedical Engineering at McMaster. We have a very strong health sciences program at McMaster. It's world-renowned for its problem-solving approach, a uh, problem-based learning approach to medical science. And we're incorporating that in the graduate program. We have It's a true collaboration between the faculties of science, health science, and engineering. So we have equal membership from faculty members in, uh, from all of those faculties and really um, will build, I think, a very collaborative environment to do this type of bioengineering research. Um, and, and we have a new building going up. That's, there's a lot of activity around that sort of thing. Very fine. Uh, out of curiosity, the uh, chemical engineering, pro the five-year chemical engineering program, as you described, uh, the uh, graduates have a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering? So they actually get a double degree. Uh, they were accredited both uh, for a chemical engineering degree and a bioengineering degree. So the students come out with a degree in chemical engineering and bioengineering. Um, so they certainly make some very marketable commodities in this uh, environment. It certainly does. Uh, Dr. Jones, I appreciate you visiting with us today and sharing your insights in terms of both your research and academic endeavors. Uh, we will, on the Regenerative Medicine Today uh, podcast site, uh, li 
list links to uh, Dr. Jones's uh, website and uh, her activities. I uh, remind you that if you have suggestions, uh, you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I also remind you that we're not physicians and we're not able to diagnose particular medical problems. Uh, and until we meet again in two weeks for another Regenerative Medicine Today podcast, uh, my thanks to the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine who sponsors this podcast and to all our listeners. Best wishes. Have a good day.